The scripture reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we look at a text that says that Redeemer and any church is called to be a particular kind of Christian community. The church is called to be a particular kind of Christian community. And we learn three things about that community here. The irreplaceability of Christian community the nature or character of Christian community, and the secret source of it. An awful lot of people today say, I am, huge numbers of Americans say to pollsters, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what that means, if you listen carefully, is I'm interested in God, but I'm not interested in the church. They've lost hope for the church. But if they understood this passage, they might have hope for the church. Let's look at these three things that we learn about the kind of community we should be. First of all, it's irreplaceability. In verse 25, it says, let us not give up meeting together. And that word meeting is a Greek word, episynagogue, from which we get our word synagogue. And it means a congregation. So there's a difference between an aggregation and a congregation. An aggregation is just a collection of individuals who come together to listen to a speaker, or come to an event. But a congregation is very different. An aggregation is like a bag of marbles with all the marbles slipping and sliding all over each other, whereas a congregation is like a cluster of grapes, which all the grapes are organically related to each other. A congregation is a community in which all aspects of the members' lives touch. You don't just come together to hear a speaker or to have an experience. You eat together, you pray together, you learn together, you love. You confess your sins to each other. See, the key to understanding what Christian community is, is this little word. It's actually one Greek word, though it comes out as two words in English. It's in verse 24 and in verse 25. It's the term one another. It says, let's spur one another. Let's encourage one another. This word means mutuality. When you come to church, according to the New Testament, it's a place you go not only to be taught and not only to be counseled or shepherded. You go, according to the New Testament, to teach one another, counsel one another, confess sins to one another, admonish one another, uh, bear burdens and weep with one another. It's mutual. And what's so important to realize is many ministers over the years have taken verse 25 and they've said, ah, look at that. Don't forsake meeting yourselves together. That means go to church. And actually, 
It kind of means that. But let me ask you a question. Here you are. You're in a church service. Are you spurring one another up to loving good works? Are you encouraging one another? Are you, we'll get into what those words mean in just a second. But no, you're not. This isn't the place where that happens. It's that deep mutual ministry. It's that deep spiritual friendship between brothers and sisters in Christ in which you get into each other's lives. You let each other into each other's lives. You open about your hurts and your problems and your needs and you hold each other accountable and you really get in. That's what verses 24 and 25 says you dare not miss out on. And you could come to New York and come to Redeemer every single week and really pat yourself on the back. I make church every week and not, not do this at all. And then you're really not obeying what the text says unless you're in a small group or unless you're much more deeply cemented into Christian community. And the reason this is so crucial is actually uh, for a reason that I haven't noticed until recently, and I've, I've preached on the book of Hebrews very often, but there's a move that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes, not just in this text, but all through chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. And here's what that move is. Notice in verse 19, it says, we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. In verse 22, it says, we draw near to God through the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, and, and in the early part of chapter 10, just early, earlier in this, ten, in, in this chapter, the writer's talking about this. Old Testament worship, the, the worshipers could not draw near. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was a holy place, and that's where the presence of God dwelled, and only the high priest could draw near one day a year, Yom Kippur. And you couldn't get in. You couldn't draw near to the immediate presence of God. And, of course, that's awful because we need that more than anything else. That's what changes you. I'm selfish, and when I get near the holiness of God, it gets me out of my selfishness. You know, I'm, I tend, I'll be hard or, you know, impatient, but when I get near the love of God, it, it melts me into mercy. When you get near God... It transforms you. But in the Old Testament, you couldn't get near. You couldn't get back there. And actually, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 1 and 2, it actually says, because of that, Old Testament worship did not perfect the worshiper. It didn't transform them. Now, here you have the writer of the Hebrews saying, yes, through Christ, through the blood of Jesus, we can come right into the presence of God. We can draw near we can have that transforming presence in our lives. We have access. And then you say, great, well then how do you access the access? And you see what he does? Do you see the move? In verses 20, 19 to 22, he's talking about how we have access to the presence of God. And then immediately he turns around and he says, what? Therefore, let us spur each other up to love and good works. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. What? Where do you access the access? How now, through Jesus Christ, does the presence of God actually come into your life and change you and make you the person you ought to be? Through community. It's not just simply praying by yourself in your prayer closet. It's through community. That's the reason why C.S. Lewis at one point in Mere Christianity writes this. He says, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. We are carriers of Christ to each other. 
It's easy to think that the church has many purposes, education, building, missions, holding services, but the purpose of all those purposes is one. The church has no other purpose than to draw people into Christ to make them like little Christs. If they're not doing that, then all the cathedrals, missions, sermons, even the teaching of the Bible are simply a waste of time. How does God's presence, transforming presence, that we have through Jesus Christ get into your life through community. And if you are just coming to services and you are not into the kind of community we're about to describe under point two, if you're just having an individual devotional time a couple of minutes every day and you think that now that's going to change your life, you're wrong. John Wesley was often, often heard to say, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. That's the irreplaceability of community, number one. Number two, now, the second thing we have to ask is, well, okay, what does this thing look like? We're being told it's more than just coming to church. It's one anothering. Well, what? There's four things that this verse 24 and 25 tells us about the nature of real community, uh, the kind of community that flows out of the access we have to the presence of God. And there's four things can be described as considering, spurring, encouraging, and working. Okay, look. First of all, considering. Notice it says, not just spur each other on to love and good works, let us consider. Let us consider. Let us stop and think. Let us ponder. Let us reflect on how we can look at the friends around us and lead them into love, more loving lives, lo- character. Look, as a pastor, sometimes I counsel. In certain times in my life, I did a lot of counseling. And what you do in counseling, and you know this if you are a counselor or you've been counseled, counselors take notes. Why do counselors take notes? Because they're considering. See, they're not just listening and just shooting off their mouth. They're really pondering, well, what, how could I help this person become less anxious, become less angry? How can I help this person get past um, their inability to handle disappointment? How can I help this person forgive? How can I help this person become happier, more joyful, wiser? Right? That's what a counselor is supposed to do. But in a healthy Christian community, we're all supposed to be doing it for each other. Oh, I don't mean taking notes. That will feel a little weird. No, I don't mean taking notes. But here's what it means. Do you have a set of people around you that you know are actively thinking how you can grow and they're thinking about how can I help you grow. Do you, know, do you have people like that? People who aren't just friendly to you. Do you have people that you are looking at and saying, what do I have to do to help this person grow? Are you that intentional about helping each other? Are you listen to, listening to each other's hopes and aspirations? Are you sharing your sins and your weaknesses and your strengths and your, and your, and your capabilities? Do you talk like that? Now, by the way, I... I'll go right out and say, women find this a more natural thing to do than guys. I think some cultures find this a more natural thing to do than other cultures, but that's no excuse. The Bible doesn't have any distinctions. It doesn't say, depending on your gender or your culture, spur each other up to love and good works. No, no, no. You have to consider. That's number one. Number two. He said there's an intentionality about helping one another grow. Do you have people around you that are that thoughtful? Can you sense that? Are you one of those people around somebody else? Number one. Number two, and now here's our favorite word for the night. I'm sure you're going to find it. 
The second thing we're told to do here is spur each other. Now, you know what this word means literally in Greek? It means to irritate each other. It's a command, irritate each other. And some of you are saying, oh, I know a few churches that are very good at this. And no, you're wrong because that's not the kind of irritation we're talking about. It's a word that means to sharply disagree, to sharply confront. And we're being told if you don't have some people around you that you allow sometimes to sharply confront you, you're not going to grow. You're not going to become a person of love and good deeds. You're dead in the water. If you're the kind of person too touchy to let anybody come in and hold you accountable about the more intimate things of your life, you're dead, spiritually speaking, and maybe in other ways too. Um, one of my favorite illustrations of this is Odysseus. You know, in the, um, um, the Odyssey, Odysseus is trying to get home and he's in a boat and he's the, you know, he's the captain of the boat. And he knows he's on his way toward the, uh, the island of the sirens. And he knows that the sirens are women who sit on the rocks and they, uh, they sing. And when male mariners hear the songs, the male mariners evidently go mad with desire and they steer their rocks toward the... Uh, their boat toward the rocks, <laughs> their boat to the rock, and they shipwreck on the rocks, and everybody dies. So he knew this was going to happen. So you know what he does? He ties himself to the mast. He puts wax in his sailor's ears, and he says, now here's how I want you to be a good friend. I'm going to go mad. I'm going to go mad with desire. I'm going to say terrible things. And when we get near the, uh, the island, I want you to completely ignore me. I want you to just keep rowing until I come to my senses. In other words, he's saying, I want you to give me what I need, not what I want. Now, this is a great example of Christian fellowship. You know why? Do you really believe what the Bible says about your sin? It's one thing to say, oh, I know I'm a sinner, and that's what the Bible says. Do you know (laughs) practically that the biggest flaws that you have, the 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 sins or the besetting flaws of your life that can most shipwreck you are by definitions the ones that you really can't see, the ones that you, you, you minimize, the ones that you rationalize, the ones that you're really kind of blind to. By definition, your biggest sins are the ones that you're sort of self deceived about. And the mark of mature Christian community, the members know that, and therefore they are accountable to each other. You go to other people and you say, look, I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to live as a Christian. And therefore, you say to your friends, the Bible says we should not have sex outside of marriage. But I want to, often. The Bible says we shouldn't be spending all of our money on ourselves in self-indulgent ways. We're supposed to be giving it away. But I want to spend my money on myself. The Bible says we should be forgiving, but I... I hold grudges. The Bible says we shouldn't be filled with self-pity, but I I get real self-absorbed and really sorry for myself. And when you see me doing that, I want you to give me what I need, not what I want. I want you to come after me. I want you to spur me. That means, you know what a spur is in a horse? I want you to hurt me. I want you to confront me. I want you to bring me up. And I give you the right to do it. Are you doing that? Have you got that? Or are you a modern person who says, this is way too personal. Only I have the right to decide 
what is right or wrong for me. I decide who I sleep with. I decide how I spend my money. This is nobody's business but mine. I hope you're ready for a very lonely existence. I know that that's what, you know, what the sociologists call, our, our, our culture is an enlightenment individualist culture. Expressive individualism, the sociologists call it. The highest value is self-determination. I have the right to decide what is right or wrong for me. That is, look, you can either have that kind of individualistic freedom or you can have a loving community, but you can't have both. Are you willing to give your friends that warrant? Are they willing to give you that warrant? Do you know how to, are you spurring each other up to love and good works? Then thirdly, and this is good news, you know, it says we should also encourage one another. This is a completely different word, almost the opposite. Spurring is to confront Encouraging is the great word parakaleo, and you can even see it. It means to encourage, but para means to come alongside. Kaleo means to call. And it means to empathetically, sympathetically put yourself in somebody's shoes, show them that you're really for them, and support them in what they're trying to do. It's exactly the opposite. You know, you need confrontation and you need support. And there are churches that are really big on confrontation, and we really lay down the law, but they're very non-encouraging. And there are churches that just want to support everybody no matter what they're doing. And neither of those produce love and good works and good deeds. Neither of these produce Christ-like character, but this is what we have to do, considering, spurring, encouraging, and finally, working. Ah. This word, good deeds, see that? That's the product. If you are really involved in this kind of one another ministry, this kind of mutual ministry, not just coming to services, but really involved in people's lives like this, it will lead you to becoming a person of love, that means character, and good deeds. Now, this term good deeds looks very generic, but actually it's a pretty important word, and it means active, compassionate service. Active, compassionate service. And to get the gist of what it means... This is one of the signs that we're really in a Christian community is let me use two words, the marginal and the practical. First, the practical. Active compassionate service means you practically help one another. Uh, When my wife, Kathy, had abdominal surgery in August and for about a month, uh, she was in the hospital for three weeks and then afterwards when she got home, it was kind of high maintenance. And for about a month, people from the church brought us a meal every night. And one of the things that just surprised me, I knew a number of the folks who brought meals, but a lot of the people I didn't, it's a big church. And very often I'd say, hi, how are you? And what do you do? And every, boy, all these people had these high powered jobs. Why not? You know, it's New York. And so we had people who are partners in financial institutions and psychiatrists and, you know, doctors and all kinds of people, these high powered jobs. And here they were bringing me a little casserole. You know, and it wasn't beneath them, was it? Is it beneath you, for example, to usher, to pass out a bulletin and and to smile at people? It's awfully simple. It's awfully menial, but that's what Christian community is made of. So first of all, good deeds means the practical, but also it means the marginal. And what I mean by marginal is the term has to do with serving people that the world neglects. Now, this isn't just really the poor. I I want you to think about this. Every single one of us, 
no matter what your ethnic group, what your national identity, your, your national origin, no matter what your class, everywhere you grew up, wherever it was, is this not true? Implicitly, sometimes with hints and jokes, either implicitly or explicitly, you were taught to disdain other groups. There was a couple of other groups that your group always disdained, looked down at. Now that we're in Christian community, this term good deeds means that we reach out to people that the world despises. In other words, we reach out to people that the world taught you to look down on, and now you don't anymore. See, that's all in this, that's all in this term. And you reach out to people in the most practical way. You reach out to people that the world taught you to look down on. And that's what it means to be a compassionate community. Uh, this is a true story. Tony Campolo, uh, who's a, you know, a, a Christian speaker and a sociologist, teaches in, in Philadelphia, uh, tells a true story about how he was uh, uh, at a conference in Hawaii, at Honolulu, and he had flown there, and of course there's a six-hour difference, and as a result, he was wide awake at 3 a.m. So at 3 a.m. one night, he, he's hungry, so he gets out and he, wa- he walks out through the streets and he finds a kind of seedy diner cafe, and he goes and he sits down and he's eating. And right next to him, he can't help but overhear a conversation between two women. Turns out that they're prostitutes, and one's name is Agnes. And Agnes was saying, tomorrow's her birthday. And the other person was saying, anything like a party going to happen? And she says, I've never had a birthday party in my life. Not too long after that, they left. So Tony turns to the owner of the diner, a guy named Harry, seedy-looking guy, and says, do you know those women? And he says, sure, they're in here every night the same night. I know them pretty well. I know all the people who come in late at night. He says, let's, Tony says, let's, let's throw her a party. When she comes in tomorrow night, let's have a party for her. And Harry says, if you want. So Tony says, well, I'll go out and buy the decorations, and I'll buy the cake, and I'll buy all that stuff. And do you know any of her friends? He says, sure, I know all of her friends. They said, well, you invite them. So the next night at 2.30, they began to decorate the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the restaurant, the diner, and they decorated the cake. And all of her friends started coming in around 3.15. And, of course, as Tony looked around, he suddenly realized that all of her friends were prostitutes. So there he was, a Christian speaker in the middle of a diner filled with prostitutes. And at 3.30 a.m., Agnes walks in, and everybody screams, Happy birthday! Now, and then the account goes like this. She was utterly, utterly stunned. She couldn't stand up. She sat down and just started crying. She looked at the cake... And she was crying too much to blow the candles out. She tried to blow the candles out. She was bawling too much. So Harry blew out the candles and handed her a knife. And as she looked at it, she said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do we really have to eat it right now? He says, look, I'll be right back, but I live right down the block, and I want to keep the cake. Would it be okay if we just kept the cake? Could I just take it home and keep it? I don't want to eat it right now. Is that okay? Is that okay? And Tony and Harry said, well, sure. And she said, wait a minute, I'll be right back. So she jumps up and runs out. And there's Tony standing in a restaurant full of prostitutes, and they don't know what to do next. You know, all the banners are there. And so every, it was an awkward pause, and this is what Tony said. He says, so what I decided to say was, what do you say we pray for Agnes? So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed her life would be changed and God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over and said, you never told me you were a preacher. 
what kind of church do you belong to? And I answered, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 (laughs) a.m. Harry thought a second, and with some hostility in his face, he said, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. He saw love and good works. He saw love and good deeds. What kind of community produces the kind of love and good deeds that makes the Harrys of the world want to come in? See, that's the nature of Christian community. Lastly, well, what's the secret of it? And you know, I never noticed this for years of studying this passage until this week, and here's what I want you to see. Verses 19 to 22 is all about what? It's what, it's what traditionally has been called assurance of salvation. This is really simple, but I, it's profound. Verse 19 says, we have confidence. Do you know what that word confidence means? It means to speak freely. What this means is to speak without thinking about what you're saying, without fear of reprisal, just to blurt and not be afraid you're going to be rejected. When you go in for a job interview, you are not speaking freely. You're thinking about every single little word. When you go into a a professor to try to get a grade change, you're thinking about every little word. If you want a better idea of what that word confident means, think of an eight-year-old little boy who's running in to ask his mother or father for something. And I can tell you this, the eight-year-old boy is not thinking, how can I say this just right? No. Eight-year-old boys just come in and they blurt. Because what? They're confident. Maybe their confidence is misplaced because you know what? Mothers and fathers are human beings and sometimes the confidence is misplaced, but they've got it. And the writer of the Hebrews has the audacity to say, if you believe in the blood of Jesus, if you ask the Father to accept you not because of your good deeds but because of what Jesus did on the cross... You have, present tense, possession, that status. There is no condemnation for you. And do you know what this means? You can draw near. You know what that means? You're in the inner ring. C.S. Lewis wrote, he gave an address years ago called The Inner Ring. And in that address which I think is brilliant, he said that one of the great ground motives, one of the great driving motivations of the human heart that is unrecognized usually is the desire to be on the inner ring. We need to feel that we're on the inside of some group that we admire or we can't live with ourselves. So that's why he said he notices a lot of scholars who, even though they're working hard on their scholarship, are probably not really after the scholarship. Their biggest concern is to get inside the inner ring of the academic elite. They want to be accepted by the academic elite. And he sees people working hard to make money, but it's not the money. They want to know that they can get into that club, that they can get into that co-op building, because then they're on the inner ring. And he sees street gangs... And what are street gangs? They're kids desperate to know they're on the inner ring. And, and, and this is what's making life miserable because we, we feel like unless I'm on the inside of some ring of people that I really respect and like, I don't know who I am. You know, I don't, I, I'm so insecure. And what that means is you despise people who are outside of the ring you're trying to get into. You envy the people who are inside the ring you're trying to get into. 
But the assurance of salvation, verses 19 to 22, is the basis for this wonderful community in verses 23 to 25. Why? Because when you know that by the blood of Jesus, you have been admitted to the ultimate inner ring. You know what that ultimate inner ring is? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're accepted by the only person who counts. You can go in, you, can, you have confidence, you can blurt it out. And when you know that you're that loved and you're that accepted, that destroys your need to get onto the inner ring. See, if you're trying, if you don't know that you're saved by God's grace, if you don't know that he loves you, then you have to desperately find love elsewhere. And so what are you doing? What are your relationships really about? You hang out not with the, you don't hang out with people for their sake. You hang out with people who make you feel good about yourself. That's why you befriend those people. That's why you hang out with those people. That's why you find these people boring. That's why you find these people disdainful. Why? Because all your relationships are about you. Until you know that you're on the inner ring. And then all your relationships can be about the other people. Because you're not relating to people so they make you feel good about yourself. You feel utterly great about yourself because you have drawn near. And if you have confidence because of what Jesus has done, that you will never be forsaken, that he loves you completely and unconditionally, that transforms your relationships. You say, well, how can I know that? How can I be sure that he has loved me like that, that I'm really, really on the inside? Well, think of Jesus' words on the cross. What is the wages of sin? Now, don't give me the answer you probably have in, the, in your head. Let me tell you, the, the, the first wages, the first results of sin, if you lie, if you cheat, if you are cruel, if you're selfish, the first result always, the first wages of sin is aloneness. Sin kills community. Sin disrupts relationships. When you lie, you now you have to hide from the people you lied from. You have to cover up. If you're cruel, you alienate people. The wages of sin is aloneness. The wages of sin is to be forsaken. The wages of sin is to be horribly and terribly alone. And on the cross, when Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the straw that broke his back. He had been betrayed by his friends. He had been rejected by his people. And now he was forsaken by his father. Why? He got the aloneness that you and I deserve. He got what your sins and my sins deserve. He lost all community. He was forsaken utterly. And you know what that means? Because Jesus was forsaken in your place, God will never forsake you. Everything that you deserve fell into Jesus' heart. And now he will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you. And you can know that. And you can know he loves you like that. And that will change your relationships. That will change our relationships. Do you not want a community like this? Don't you want to be part of a community like this? I want you to know that over the 20 years I've been part of Redeemer, I've seen plenty of examples of this, flashes of this. But we, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Draw near with full assurance of faith, understanding the meaning of the blood of Jesus, experiencing the entry into the inner place and then let that transform your relationships and build a community that the Harrys of the world will want to be part of. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us a moment now, the Lord's Supper, 
to not only draw near to you, but draw near to each other. Make us the community we should be because of the holiness, because of the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.